How can you master your movement and just your total being as a whole? I'm super excited for this episode with Dr. Eric Cobbs. Let's bring in the show. You ready? Welcome to the Success Code, where Roy Red provides interviews, discussions, strategies, and talks to help broaden your perspective on your road to cracking the Success Code. Success Code. Hi everybody, it's Roy, five-time best-selling author, public speaker, and your host of this show, The Success Code, where we give positive outlooks on business, income, how to create a better impact, how to create a better lifestyle, and I'm super excited for today's episode. We got a guy I've been following for years. As all of you guys know, I love working out. You guys say I work out too much, and you guys ask me so much questions about how are you able to look that way, be that strong? And it's hard to explain because I'm not smart, but I got the smart guy that I follow on the show today, Dr. Eric Cobb, CEO of Z Health Performance. Doc, how are you doing today? Doing very well, man. Thank you. First, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been a fan for years. Uh, me and my group of of athlete and trainer friends been fans for years my dad's been a fan for years took in your classes and he's taught me everything that i know so i just wanted to wanted you real quick to tell the people what you do and what is your model of performance <laughs> uh all right i'll try and i'll try and do this quickly summarize yeah. a little bit uh, so i own basically z health is an education company for the last about 25 years or so, I've had a huge fascination with how the brain and body interact. Mm -hmm. So really what I've done is built a training curriculum that emphasizes the fact that brain and body are interconnected. We're very what we call neurocentric, which says, hey, how, how do we actually use exercise to improve brain function? Mm -hmm. How do we use uh, targeted brain drills to improve physical function? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you kind of look at what we do, it's, it's an interesting blend of mobility, strength work, but then the weird stuff that a lot of people haven't seen before is we bring in the visual system. We do a lot of kind of weird, uh, what's called vestibular inner ear drills. Uh, a ton of breathing work. So it's a pretty integrated approach to try and help people get out of pain, um, make workouts, fitness uh, efforts more beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a huge core as well of elite athletes that we work with. So it's a system that kind of takes you from wherever you are, hopefully to wherever you want to get to. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to dive into that for sure. Um, how did you get into this work? I know uh, hearing people's different journeys on how they started something. I know I basically got lucky on what I was doing because of, you know, what my dad does. And, um, just, I just got lucky. I was like, I'm going to be a life coach. Just, I didn't know what that was and then got lucky and just fell into what I'm doing. But how did you get into, um, obviously you always love the brain and the body, but how did you really niche out and really get into this, this niche in this industry? Sure. Uh, so I always tell people kind of basic story on this is okay. pretty much like most entrepreneurs. It was mainly, I was super frustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up as an athlete, uh, two different sports, and I had a lot of chronic pain as a result. <clears throat> I was a fighter. Um, and by the time I was in my early twenties, I had this chronic back pain, shoulder pain, foot pain. So I decided to go to school uh, to study exercise science, 
And as soon as I got into the exercise science world, I was I thought, okay, well, this is interesting, but no one's going to really listen to me. So then I decided to become a clinician. I went through chiropractic college. I got out into my first uh, real practice after going through school and internships, and et cetera. Uh, and I was pretty good at, at the stuff I learned in school. But unfortunately, in the real world of real people, I was super frustrated. Yes. It didn't seem to be as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of a perfectionist by nature. So I, was, I, I tell people that my, my goal was I wanted to help 100% of everyone that walked through the door, regardless if they were a pro athlete or and they were a wheelchair. didn't matter to me. Yeah. Uh, and I found that a lot of the systems that I had learned were somewhat lacking. Now, I also had, uh, like you talk about luck, I was really lucky in when I was in school, mm-hmm. one of my professors was a neurophysiology uh, professor, mm-hmm. and he had done some of his early work with some of the pioneers really in what I call po- modern pain neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So he got me really interested in neurology uh, mm-hmm. when I was really young. And so in the early 90s, mid 90s, whenever I was in practice and growing increasingly frustrated, I just tried to take a step back and say, hey, do I really know how the body works? Um, and from a mechanical perspective, I could tell you about muscles and tendons and joints, yes. but I didn't know that much about uh, neuroanatomy and, and how the brain and everything works. Because I, you know, traditionally, even supposedly being a neuromusculoskeletal guy, professional, uh-huh. it was almost like the, the body ended from the neck up, right? <laughs> we just yeah. didn't adjust, it didn't address that. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think one of my very early uh, experiences in this was having a client come in, patient come in with chronic neck pain. And we did all this stuff, trying to fix her neck and uh, we did fascial release and mobilizations and rehab exercises and nothing was helping. And uh, she wound up going to her optometrist. She got a new prescription for uh, glasses and she came back. She's like, my neck's fine. And I felt like an idiot. So, <laughs> so kind of led me down this uh, long road now, 25 years later, of trying to understand how everything works together. Uh-huh. Okay, so I kind of have my questions in line, but we'll jump around based on right. that. So dive into kind of how you're just talking about that client. Dive into the importance of, of input and how input affects um, your output or hopefully you can explain it in a way to where people who really uh, haven't been following you can understand, but how what you take in through your senses affects, could affect pain and how you, how you move in, in general. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So here's the, here's the basic overview, right? Whenever we look at the human body uh, at this point, which is cool, it's 2020. Uh-huh. When I say things like the brain runs everything, most people accept that now. Yeah. 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yes. Um, whenever we look at human function, we have the, the nervous system. That's our control center. Okay. And the major thing people need to know is that your brain doesn't care how much weight you lift. It doesn't care how fast you run. All it really wants to do is survive the effort. <laughs> so at a very kind of primitive wiring level, the brain is oriented towards survival. Yes. So all of our survival decisions are made based off the information we're taking in, right? That's the input. So whenever, let's say I'm going to do a kettlebell workout, Uh I reach down, I grab that kettlebell. I'm getting input from the sensors in my hand, right? All the joints, tendons, and ligaments are giving me information. At the same time, maybe I'm going to be doing swings. And so I'm bent over and my eyes are in a certain position and your brain's taking in all of that data Mm -hmm. and it's trying to to create this map of your world 
Yeah. And it's trying to make sure that you're going to be safe as you're moving. So whenever we have a problem anywhere in any of these input systems, the, the way that we describe this is that your brain will start to put the brakes on your performance. Yes. Now, if you're an athlete, that may only be manifested as, yeah, I just don't feel it today. I'm, I'm not as fast. I'm, I, you know, I'm not as strong as I want to be. The more extreme version of protection in the nervous system is pain or anxiety or depression or things that make you want to avoid the activity uh, on the whole. So um, we tell people the nervous system does three things. It takes in information input. It makes a decision about what to do with it. And then from there, it creates the output. So we always say if you want to change the output for the better, you have to look at the input systems and the brain that's actually doing the uh, interpretation. That's amazing. And I want to ask you some questions for myself later about that decision part, because I think my work is changing that what I call the mindset ceiling, that perception, which sometimes you can change that decision. But um, you said you're a fighter and you kind of talked about uh, threat and surviving, which is everything. Um, what role does threat and just kind of go a little deeper in how threat um, the role threat plays in our performance because it's threat inoculation. And for those who don't know what inoculation is, it's like uh, when you get a flu shot, they inoculate you with the flu so you're able to deal with the flu. So you can speed up uh, your your improvement fast by just letting the brain know it's safe to go to certain places. And so I wanted you to kind of explain that and maybe give some quick tips on how we can uh, figure out what's threatening us so we can improve pretty quickly. Okay. So yeah, the, the little visual I always give people is what we call the threat bucket. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea here is that you wake up in the morning as a, an act of life, you're going to be collecting different threats right now. People have heard different terms applied to threat that called stress, right? If I were to ask a average, you know, group of people, tell me some things that stress you out. They'd say, well, you know, my work, I got an issue with one of my kids, my relationship, uh, you know, COVID right now is hit up, my business is in, in trouble. Yeah. And all of them are perceived by your brain as potentially threatening your survival at some level. Yeah. So we start to collect threats. Now, on top of that, we also have other input threats, stuff we were just talking about. Yeah. So let's imagine I wake up one morning, I've had a crappy night's sleep. Um, I'm fighting with my partner for whatever reason, business is in trouble. And so now I'm collecting, collecting, collecting threats. And then on top of that, uh, now I have maybe, let's say I was playing basketball on the weekend. I took an elbow, uh, to the head. Didn't really bother me that much at the time, but maybe it's, you know, gave me a little bit of a, uh, imbalance in her ear. So now all of a sudden I've got the emotional stress, the financial stress, the inner ear stress, and we would call all those threats. Yeah. So once the threats reach a certain level, they're going to start creating some kind of protective output. And that protective output, the number one thing your brain pays attention to is pain. Mm -hmm. So that would typically be the first thing that you would experience. And that pain could be an old pain that you already have some, some practice with. Oh, my back's hurting again. Uh, it could be something, something new. Uh, and then, like I said, on top of that, there's also other ways that your brain will try to protect you to, by using emotions, right? Mm -hmm. To make you anxious about stuff. Uh, you start getting catastrophic thinking where 
you know, you're now obsessively thinking about problems in the business. Mm-hmm. So we have to, at a kind of global level, if you want to think of it this way, whenever I'm working with an athlete or working with a client, I'm trying to evaluate their threat bucket and say, all right, what's going in? And then we just piece by piece, we try to start to eliminate some of those problems. So, uh, you know, that what that translates to in the real world for us in teaching is we have uh, a ton of vision tests that we do. We have a ton of inner ear tests that we do, a lot of breathing. But then on top of that, we talk about diet, we talk about sleep, we talk about, you know, what type of training are you doing? Mm-hmm. The number one uh, piece of advice I try to give people in general is if you're having a performance issue of any kind, and my back hurts, my knee, um, I can't focus, can't concentrate very well, we have to start diving into that threat bucket and testing one thing at a time, uh, usually to figure out which of those is going to make the biggest difference for you. Mm-hmm. The big shift here in thinking, I think, is really important, though, because if you come from a uh, mechanical background, let's say you have a background in exercise science or biomechanics, uh, we were taught someone has a problem with a knee. Well, you got to go in and you have to test the knee. How are the muscles? Do they have a ligament problem? Is there a meniscal tear? Etc. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's not really how pain works. Yeah. <laughs> um, you have to look a little bit more holistically, <clears throat> and by holistic, I don't mean that in the weird, you know, Easy. the weird sense. I mean, we yeah. actually have to look at the human being as an integrated system. Mm-hmm. In medicine, this is called the biopsychosocial model, uh, which means we have to pay attention to the biology, to the psychology, and the sociology of everyone, because there's somewhere within that there's an answer probably for what's bothering you. Man, that's that's so awesome. Um, okay, I want to ask you, what's more important? And I guess your outcome, the your desired outcome, makes a bigger makes a big difference in what would uh, be most important. But just in general, what would you say is more important: threat, um, controlling threat and stress, or calorie uh, controlling calories? <laughs> It, it definitely depends on what outcome you're going after. Yes. <laughs> if you've tried to get really lean, you know that if a ton of caloric control can feel pretty threatening. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I've worked, uh, I've worked with tons of figure competitors and bodybuilders and mm-hmm. it's people that don't, don't work in that industry. Don't really have an idea of how terrible most of them feel yeah. by the time they get to a competition or they get to a photo shoot yeah. because the calorie calorie levels are so low. They really are kind of in a starvation, uh, setup. Now, having said that, we also, obviously, if you look at our culture, we're way too far on the other side. Yeah. Where there's not nearly enough caloric control. And whenever we're constantly bombarding the body with too much food and the wrong types of food, that induces its own very demonstrable set of threats. So trying to figure out the balance there, I think is really important. Generally, whenever I work with most clients, we focus on the threat bucket first and then start shifting to calories because it's all about behavior. Um, I always tell people it's, it's easier generally to get someone to do three or four minutes of exercises than it is to give them, get them to give up, you know, sugar. Uh, so you start off with a win, you teach their brain that they can make a change. And then as they start to make that change, then we start adding up, uh, we try to add more and more wins to that on a daily basis. Start with a win. That's, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. I have a bunch of nursing friends and I tell them that, 
the the threat and the stress is more important than the calories. They they look at me like I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> really quick, thank you for everyone who just jumped on the show. A bunch of people just jumped on. Hop into chat and ask Dr. Cobbs a question, and we will read them live. That'll be on your right side if you're on YouTube. That'll be below if you're on Facebook. We are talking about how to master your movement and your being. If it is, if you are on Facebook, uh, that'll be below you. If you're anywhere else, Periscope, LinkedIn, we don't even know where you comment because we don't even <laughs> we don't even use those things. Uh, so, Doc, uh, you're talking about the uh, stress levels, and I like to use the analogy of a cup, a stress cup, and you don't want your cup to overflow. Um, and one thing I, you know, I always thought that I was just a really good athlete and just different, just just kind of egoic and thought I was better than everyone until I looked back and realized my dad's breeded me since I was a kid. He made me learn how to juggle. He used to make me do weird stuff on looking certain places and just, um, he worked on my proprioception and my vestibular system and my eyes from a little kid. Then when I got older, I was able to do some really cool stuff and I always thought I was just great and I wasn't. He just bred me. But what I wanted to ask you was, is there a way to make that stress cup bigger to where you can handle more stress or do are we kind of do we have to just control what we got? No, I actually think you can. I think there's two different ways you can look at it. Number one, I think you can expand the size of the cup or mm-hmm. the bucket or whatever you want to call it, yeah. because that's what training is for. Uh, whenever you use the term threat inoculation, I think that's super important for people to understand because often when people hear me talk about threat and how that may, once we get too much of it, that can provoke pain and other issues. Mm-hmm. It's super um, important for people to hear. I'm not saying that we always need to reduce threat. Yeah. We want to make sure that we're threatening people at the appropriate level. Yeah. So in medicine, this is called the, the minimal effective dose, right? Um, the, the way I explain it is, listen, if you've ever taken Advil for a headache, uh, the standard dosage is two pills or two capsules. That's 400 milligrams. So if you only if you cut them all up and you took four milligrams, it might be the right drug, but it's the wrong dose to help your headache. Yeah. You take 40,000 milligrams, it'll be the last headache you ever have because it'll kill you. Uh, so we have to figure out for our clients and for ourselves, how do we threaten ourselves enough that the brain says, if that happens again, I want to be prepared. So that's where a lot of our traditional modalities come in. Mm-hmm. We look at strength training, we look at aerobic training, interval training. Um, the sports world has shown a pretty decent path for how do we increase the size of the cup, right? So, uh, we need to inoculate people. Yeah. The problem is that. If you aren't using some kind of measure, if you're not really paying attention to your own body mm-hmm. uh, and you're trying to work through someone else's program, that's where things get really problematic. Um, when you look at the programs that are in books, when you look at programs that are in magazines, particularly if you're trying to follow a high level athlete, their workouts are not for the average person. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people will blame that on genetics, but the truth is it's lifestyle. If you haven't worked with an Olympic athlete, a professional athlete, their life is wake up, train, get therapy, have someone cook a meal for them, take a nap, train some more, repeat. Most of us are not doing that, right? So it's uh, the threat bucket is inclusive of all of your life stresses. Mm -hmm. So in order to, uh, like, like I said, modulate that, that's one of the reasons I'm so focused on some of the other systems in the body. 
Yeah. If you look at uh, visual stress, right now we're seeing an epidemic of people complaining about their eyes, their heads, they're getting headaches. Yeah. Well, that's because of coronavirus and the pandemic has forced a lot of people to be on screens. The last study I read was 12 to 13 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and our nervous systems are not still not particularly wired for that, right? We evolved for uh, uh, open air environment, uh, spending more time outside, our eyes relaxed. The, you know, uh, while the internet and phones and everything are amazing tools, we're not yet particularly wired to do well with them. So uh, yeah, those are, as I said, there's kind of a couple of different ways you can look at it. The right type of training, I think increases the size of the cup. Okay. Uh, and on top of that, we also have to look at for each individual person, for them, what's the major stressor. Okay. So how do you go about, how do you go about assessing that and what maybe you could talk a little bit about the eight levels of performance model and kind of in that, but so like you said, that makes so much sense. A performance athlete can take so much stress and they could work out more. They're recovering better. Um, is how do you how do you assess your stress bucket? So this is a there are a number of different ways to do yeah. this. Yeah. Um, normally, what I actually recommend that people do if they're willing, mm-hmm. uh, if you take your own medical history, you can learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, most people at some point have been to a doctor or a therapist or whatever, and they sat down and they filled out that chart. And most people, when they're filling out the paper, they just put a no on everything, right? Yeah. Just to save time. Yeah. Uh, because we haven't really, I think, emphasized how important a good history is. Whenever you look at the, the brain, the easiest way to think about this is our brain is constantly creating maps of our own body. Yeah. It's creating also maps of our external environment and how those two interact. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to identify your major stressors, the easiest thing to do is to think about, all right, well, what are the things that bother me? Is it my foot? Is it my knee? Do I feel fatigued all the time? Mm-hmm. If you'll take five or 10 minutes and write down your major issues and then try to think back and identify when did they begin? Um, I always, the, the question I teach our coaches to ask is what happened before what happened happened? So if you notice that you have knee pain cropping up, well, what happened before that started? Mm-hmm. Normally within the preceding one to two months, something will have changed. You'll have changed shoes or maybe you started a new training program with a different type of exercises. Uh, that is one of the easiest ways to start to identify your major stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, because once you have that, then from there you can start to add in additional forms of testing. Obviously, you know, for our professionals, we have, literally hundreds of assessments that we teach yeah. to try and identify, you know, what's wrong with the eyes, what movements that they need to do. But most people with just a little bit of self-awareness will notice, yeah, if I really think about it, three hours on the computer, I start to feel sluggish. Yeah. I start to get neck tension. I start to get a headache. Um, so if you can just, even if you don't know where else to start, just bringing a little self-awareness to your day may start to show you what some of the issues are and then you can start to figure out some ways to uh, either train yourself out of that or figure out who you should talk to about it yeah that's that's huge that's clutch um what happened before what happened happened that is genius because when you were talking about fatigue i get fatigued a lot and um, so I was going to ask you just now when you said that, I was going to say, well, what would you do for fatigue? 
And then it hit me when you asked that question that I get fatigued after my hard workout that I feel like I have to do first. So maybe I can do that later in the day. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. So I want to talk about the role of that decision-making part. Mm-hmm. Because I tell people all the time that your self-talk uh, determines you, you take in that input and then what you say about that input can affect the output. And like we know, like the double slit experiment, the your how you observe things actually changes the very things that you're observing. And what role does that self-talk and maybe just for lack of better terms, confidence uh, play in helping that stress and output and that stress cup and uh, helping the performance of an athlete? Okay. Uh, this is an incredibly cool topic. I'm glad you asked the question. It oh. also can get pretty deep. <laughs> this, uh, this is my thing. I geek out about this right here. So I'll try to, uh, let's, I'll try to not use too many neuro words here. Uh, but whenever we, we start talking about decision-making, um, there are multiple brain areas that are involved in this whole process, right? Yes. And the easiest way to think about this to begin with, I think, is to recognize that there are some models of the brain that separated out into what we call an old brain and a new brain, all right, or what we call first brain and second brain. So your old brain's job is to keep you alive. This is the more primal part of us that, you know, when we feel hunger or thirsty or we get angry, it's incredibly emotional, right? It's it's hugely driven by emotion. The job of the new brain basically I say is to inhibit the old brain. This is what allows us to live in societies uh, to figure, you know, don't eat your neighbor. Not a good thing. Yeah. That's a new brain activity. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the first things that I try to tell people who do struggle with decision-making issues is to say, listen, we want to make sure first and foremost that your brain is healthy. If you dig into the history of many people that have making problems uh, you'll figure out at some point they had a mild brain trauma. Uh, whenever we have a concussion or multiple TBIs, you see this, or TBI stands for traumatic brain injury. Uh, you'll see multiple versions of this in guys that play football, uh, your fighter, soccer players, people that are in contact sports. Yes. Uh, so we know that in order to support better decision-making, first and foremost, we need to make sure that the brain is healthy. The hardware. Uh, and that comes from movement, that comes from breathing, that comes from taking care of some of these issues that we were just discussing. Now, on the self-talk side, uh, there is a ton of research that that's clearly demonstrates that what we say to ourselves absolutely matters in how we ultimately perform. Um, it, it's, it's becoming even more clear. I just taught a class. Uh, we have an, a class just primarily on endurance. Um, and some of the studies that are coming out now, they they, they show that, hey, you can actually talk yourself into going longer. You can talk yourself into going harder. Uh, It is about the word choices that you make. Because whenever we think about everything from this kind of primitive threat perspective, whenever I am choosing language in my own head that is more threatening, that shows uh, or presents to my brain the possibility of survival problems, right? This is too hard. I can't do it. Uh, those words by themselves can increase activity in a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is our kind of primary fear processing area. Uh, And so a lot of negative self-talk can kind of push you more into that first brain functioning where things become more and more stressful and more and more emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Whenever, now, the other part of this I will say is that this is why a carefully programmed approach to exposure, to inoculation, if you want to call it that, yeah. is so important. Yeah. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a researcher out in San Diego, uh, and he, he basically was trying to figure out what's the difference of brains between average people and elite athletes. And so they, they put people into a scanner, uh, and they were looking particularly at part of the brain called the insular cortex. Now, the insula does all kind of stuff, yeah. but one of the things it responds to is being out of breath, right? So I'm out for a hard run or I'm doing intervals and I start to get out of breath. The insula will become more active and it'll attach fear to that so that it'll change our breathing patterns. Yeah. So the elite athletes that they chose, they picked Navy SEALs and Ironman competitors and they looked at their brains versus average people. But what they did is while they were in the scanner, they were breathing through a tube and they gradually began to crank down the tube. So they got less and less air. Yeah. So what they figured out was that the brains of the elite performers didn't freak out. And the reason they didn't freak out was that they had experienced it before. Like, hey, I've, I have experienced not having air. I survived. I was okay. So they, the, the concept was that the elite performer has a more accurate map of the stress. And this is where I think mental training is such in coaching yeah. are such powerful tools because they, you know, in there's an old phrase in sales that says, answer the questions before they get asked. Yeah. That's what coaching is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. This is what it's going to feel like. This is what you're going to experience and you're going to be okay. Uh, so whenever that comes from the outside and then also internally, I think it's a huge tool for reducing threat. Uh, that's huge. Um, actually, one of the things or kind of the main thing I try to do with athletes is get them to visualize worst case scenarios. And that kind of fits that that experiment you just told us about, because, yeah. you know, if I tell them if you could play it in your head and just really you have to strive towards winning but while at the same time not not giving a damn and it's kind of pulling from both ends um that's huge that's huge um what role how do i want to ask this question okay so i i asked the same question to a uh, neuroscientist i'll just ask you now that we know that there's plasticity neuroplasticity does that mean we should throw out everything we know about the brain? I mean, (laughs) since we know that it can change plastic, um, what, what's that balance of, yeah, this is this, but at the same time you, you, you can change it. And how do we keep it? Uh, like my dad likes to say elastic Mm -hmm. so that we can change it or be, uh, as plastic as possible so that we can be uh, fluid as possible. Yeah, that is a, it's a great question that unfortunately at this point, we don't have a a perfect answer to. Yeah. Um, The, I tell people, I think the discovery of neuroplasticity that we're not this kind of fixed mammal that, you know, nothing's ever going to change, but the fact that the brain is constantly evolving, it's constantly shifting its uh, functional parameters. Mm -hmm. There's evidence some evidence uh, that we can even grow new neurons uh, in different parts of the brain. So in terms of how much of this is shifting viewpoints in uh, neurology and neuroscience, I think it has shifted them tremendously. Um, some early, you know, early neuroscientists, whenever we started talking about early 90s when um, 
brain scans became much more available and we started learning more about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. The estimates they gave was, you know, 80 to 90% of everything we thought we knew about the brain before 1995 was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. This is the nature of science. Uh, There's a fantastic quote from years ago that says a a true scientist is not concerned with the ultimate answer, but with the proximate answer, right? What's, what do we know right now? Uh, I think we are many years away from having a perfectly clear view of what happens in the brain. But on a personal level, what I tell people is that um, years ago, because of my training, I was prone to saying, well, you know, this is what you have. This is as good as I think it's going to get. And I don't do that at all anymore because every time I've given someone a sentence that, Hey, this is never going to get any better. Someone has proven me wrong at some point. Yeah. Uh, and that has made me much more personally, hopefully responsible to say, I don't know what your brain's capable of. Yeah. What I do know is that they can change uh, and they can change in phenomenal ways. Yeah. I always recommend if people are into this and they want to know more about it, there's a beautiful book written by Norman Deutsch, Dr. Deutsch, uh, called The Brain That Changes Itself. It's kind of a, it's a great easy read that dives into just amazing changes in brains due to neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we are anywhere close to a understanding or being knowing what the limits are. And I personally choose to think that there are very few limits if we can figure out how to push things in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that the brain doesn't need work. It needs tons of work in order to create change because as mammals, we like, <laughs> I, there's actually a, a uh, theory out there called the selfish brain theory, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means that the brain only wants to conserve calories and only wants to conserve energy, right? It's basically lazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to some degree we see that, right? Because people, uh, we often opt for the easier route. And I think that makes sense because if we evolved in a time when there was, there were few nutritional resources available then doing things as habitually unthinking as possible was a good way to stay alive but it didn't necessarily mean that you were going to grow a bunch of new skills. Yeah. Now with the change in our external world, we have so many opportunities to do really amazing things. So this idea of elasticity um, in the neuroscience world, is called metaplasticity. So you have plasticity and then metaplasticity, yeah. which is how good is your brain at being plastic? So the, from our understanding uh, and how we approach this is we really encourage a ton of novelty, meaning in your training, do different things, try different exercises, pick up different sports, cognitively challenge yourself, right? You're bad at languages. Well, then start trying to study a language. However, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, because we know that whenever we add different stimuli to the brain, as long as it's not too stressful, it actually causes it to be more upregulated and it gives you an opportunity to create more change. So for us, novelty is a pretty big deal. What you run into, the challenge is that if you're trying to prepare a super high level athlete for competition, Mm -hmm. you can't make it too novel, right? To the point that you're now moving them away from this one, one arena. But honestly, I tell people that doesn't, that applies to 0.1% of the world. The rest of us, we need to, figure out things that we love, get really good at them, and then start changing them, make them more challenging, make them uh, add different tasks to them. You know, I, right now we're really trying to get people focused on adding cognitive challenges to workouts, right? Uh, super simple. 
Uh, and you can look at our posts and blogs, everything. Uh, this is a stupid example. This is one of the examples. We have these charts. We call them hand-eye charts. Mm -hmm. A line, we have a star. The star is either on the right side, the left side, or it's touching the line. Mm -hmm. So you put it up on the wall. There's about 60 of them on a page. And I tell people, okay, you can rack two dumbbells or two kettlebells. And if it's on the right side, you can press right. If it's on the left side, you can press left. If it's touching the line, you press both. Yeah. And as stupid as that sounds, we're now actually complicating the training session by adding in some visual training, mm -hmm. some decision making. Uh, and these are all the things that uh, we're starting to see. From, there is some research that's starting to show that this is really effective uh, for improving physical performance, but also maintaining cognitive flexibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that's huge. Um, I know a lot of people who train agility, but mm -hmm. before they go into the exercise, they know what they're doing. Um, but adding in that you have to, that decision making is uh, mm -hmm. super huge. And uh, my dad always says that it's not a, if there's no decision making in it, it's not agility training. Um, Correct. But um, yeah, that's huge. I kind of want to touch on the, the survival and the selfish thing. Um, it seems kind of the Darwin, yeah, survival, but then we also have this whole nother trying to survive what we consider ourselves to be. So like if we, you know, we want to survive, but if we consider, if we love our wife, we consider ourselves to be a good husband, we'll jump into a burning building for her and, and not even think about, you know, our life or our survival. So it seems like um, there's some that consideration is in that decision, that decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for everybody who just jumped on. We are talking to Dr. Eric Cobb, co-founder of Z Health on how to master your being and movement. We are towards the end. We got a couple more questions here and then we'll get you out of here, doc. Thank you so much for your time. I wanted to ask you, what is a quote that you live by? Oh, wow. <laughs> You're, uh, that's a good question. I am a quote fanatic. I have, uh, I actually, my old office before Corona, I had my entire wall was covered with three by five cards, uh, different quotes. Mm -hmm. uh, so the quote that I live by, I, actually, there's, a, there's one I just put up, I think, on Sunday in our Instagram uh, it's from E.E. E. Cummings, and it basically uh, talks about this idea of being yourself in a world that's constantly trying to make you into something that you're not. It's one of the most difficult things a human being can do. Yeah. Uh, that's not an exact quote, but that's the, that's the essence of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I think a lot about. Basically, um, for me as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. building an educational system, particularly 20-plus years ago now, where I was bringing in doctors therapists, trainers, coaches into the same room and teaching them all the same thing. Yeah. Um, that was actually a, a really interesting challenge. I got a lot of feedback. I'll just say it that way in the beginning that, you know, how dare you teach someone who doesn't have a medical degree about pain. Yeah. Uh, and so for me though, it was the only thing that made sense. Right. I, I, I always try to start off with this ethical perspective of listen, our job, regardless of the name of your profession, is to help people yes. uh, and pain is a standard part of human existence. 
And so if you work with a person, you need to understand pain. You need to help people know how to get out of that because it's one of the greatest uh, contributors to poor performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I think I've thought a lot about that E. Cummings quote over the years because it would have been very easy for me to shift our curriculum and go, okay, well, I'm only going to teach healthcare providers. But at an ethical level, that was would have been absolutely the wrong thing to do because if you look at, let's say, personal trainer, uh, most personal trainers work with a, pay, a client 100 to 200 hours a year. Mm-hmm. That same client will spend 15 minutes with their doctor. Yeah, if they. I've always told the medical guys, I'm like, look, these are the people, these are your frontline providers. They are, they're in a position to help them make better lifestyle choices, to exercise, to eat right. They're also in a position to notice when something is wrong and to say, you know what, that's weird. You need to go see somebody. Uh, So, you know, for the last 20 plus years, we've been trying to blend these crowds and it's been a, it's been a really incredible experience to see that happen. And literally all that's kind of been driven by that, that one thought of stick guns. <laughs> if you believe that this is important, then you need to stick to it. And I know probably some really cool distinctions probably came out of that because, you know, I like like my pops always says, he says the the uh, the eye doctor knows that the eyes can make someone's back hurt, but the, the chiropractor doesn't know that and they don't talk to each other. Yeah, that's that's the, the huge thing, you know, medicine and training, like everything's divided up into I'm a specialist in the knee, I'm a specialist in the eye, I'm a specialist in kettlebells. And I'm like, those are tools, yeah. right? We need as a, uh, I think as a community, we need people who look at the integrated function, which requires you to be a really educated generalist, yeah. right? It doesn't mean that you can solve, if someone needs surgery, trust me, I'm the first person to go, go see that surgeon. But uh, at the same time, I need to have resources that if, if they don't need that, maybe I can provide them something that they can do at home. We save them time, we save them money. Uh, and you start to create, I think, this really interesting relationship with clients whenever you have this perspective. Yeah. You're kind of this trusted uh, advisor. Yeah. Really educated generalist. I just wrote yeah. that down. That's huge. I'm putting that on the shirt. <laughs> I'll send you I'll send you 50%. Um would you rather be respected or loved? Respected. That's huge. I saw a quote yesterday. It said, respect fills the void that of where people can't love or something like that. And I was like, yo, that's really huge. All right. Um, what is a perfect successful life in your opinion? Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know we were getting this deep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, for me, I think the, at at a very philosophical level, for me, the most successful life is a life that allows you the time to pursue the things that you love, whatever that might be. Uh, if that's pursuing a deeper relationship with your partner, if that's pursuing, you know, an Olympic gold medal for me, time is the only commodity or the, the most precious thing. Um, you know, I, Came from from years I used to work with the military, um, particularly after 9-11, and then things got crazy. I've had lots of patients. I've had friends. I've had lots of people who have, whose lives have been cut short trying to, to take care of other people. Uh, and I think that gave me a, a deeper appreciation and perspective that, yeah. you know, we can always make more money. We can always figure out another exercise program or whatever it is, what we can't ever get back is our time. And so for me, 
I think the life success is deeply tied into, do you control your time or is it controlled by someone else? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. If you woke up tomorrow, uh, 50 pounds overweight, stressed out, um, things not going well, what are the first three steps you take to get a hold of the steering wheel so you can get on track? Mm. Uh, so if I woke up tomorrow, everything was horrible in my life. Uh, <laughs> you know, body doesn't feel good. Life doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, after I just turned 50 a few weeks ago and after a long time in this industry, um, I literally, my first point of attack would be to figure out what winning that day would mean for me. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that would be the very first thing is winning that day maybe means I'm picking up an apple once I'm taking one bite of it. People have, in my opinion, people have very grandiose ideas about what they can accomplish in a day. Uh, And I think on a behavioral level, most of us don't recognize that a lot of the changes that we want to enact in our lives are going to take some time. So you have to figure out a mental perspective that says, win today, win today, win today, win today. As you get enough wins, things really start to shift and start to change. So, yeah, my first decision would be I'm not sleeping, I'm overweight, etc. All right, what is a win that I can accomplish today? Because I think small wins create momentum. Uh, and really what we're trying to, particularly for a, a life that's out of control, we have to create momentum in the, the direction we want to go. Every night I go over daily wins and it gives you momentum into the next day. Yeah. All right, Doc, thank you so much. Can you please plug yourself? I have your uh, right below you here. They can see. Uh, your Instagram handle, um, what you're working on, when you're going to be able to do classes again, and uh, what you're going to be uh, offering here in the next uh, few months. Sure. Uh, so you can find out about our curriculum. Our website is zhealtheducation.com. Um, if you want to get a little look into my thought processes, uh, check out our Instagram. Um, we're quite consistently there every day. Um, what we're doing right now Obviously, we have we had to go completely virtual. Um, what we tried to do, well, we didn't try. We made it happen. Uh, in the last six months, we've actually basically refilmed our entire curriculum in a studio, a beautiful uh, setting. Uh, we've made all of our courses now completely online. So, so online certifications. So all that is now happening. Um, we just released a product called the Breathing Gym. So I have a few more general public products that we're looking at. So we're just going to keep improving our online training system. And then once we can go back live, uh, we have adaptations as well. So, And that's huge, guys. Breathing, like I always say on my story, you can go days without food, but you can you can only go a minute without breathing. So there's obviously a hierarchy of things you really need to master, and breathing is one of them. I know it's not sexy, but it works. And so make sure you hit up Dr. Cobbs, follow Z Health, and uh, really master your breathing. And if you master your breathing, everything else will fall in line. Doc, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We went three minutes over, but you gave us so many gems. Thank you. And um, I just, just thank you, man. I appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. All right. Have a good day, man. Thank you.
Thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, please share, please like, please comment. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed making it for you. Till next time, we are out. You ready? Welcome to the Success Code, where Roy Red provides interviews, discussions, strategies, and talks to help broaden your perspective on your road to cracking the Success Code. Success Code.